Hi, we're back. It's Connor Cast. Welcome to episode six. This is Kat here. I'm joined um, in this lovely little cupboard, <laughs> <laughs> the new Contourcast cupboard with David Jameson. How's it going? And we have our very special guest, FK Alexander. Hi. Who is an artist and also my best friend. Ah. And we've had Pete Romand on the show before. Um, so basically this podcast is me and David just kind of interviewing our friends. <laughs> but we've found a little um, space where we can record. So we hope that sound quality is good. Um, it's actually a cupboard in my house. And there's three of us in it. So it's, um, it's quite an intimate show tonight. Mm. So... Yeah, what's been going on? So, I mean, uh, the, the, the Brexit crisis rumbles on and on to the production of much brain damage for everyone uh, <laughs> observing and participating. And it's taken a new turn, which is that the MPs having one return into Parliament, which we were told was like the second coming or something, all that's happened in that Parliament since then is the MPs have told everyone that they're being oppressed by voters. MPs are the most oppressed people in British society today, <laughs> and they are terrified. And uh, this was stoked right on time by... Everyone's uh, favourite pundit. Yes, that is... can't remember his name. <laughs> Brendan O'Neill. Brendan O'Neill. Um, will, we, will we listen to what he said? Yes. What must ordinary people be thinking as they listen to all of this stuff? I mean, they must just be so horrified. Just try to put yourself in the mind of someone in Stoke or Merthyr Tydfil or Dagenham who voted for Brexit three and a half years ago and who was told again and again and again that what they voted for would happen, who were promised endlessly that their vote would be respected and also were promised again in the 2017 general election, what must they be thinking as they hear these so-called experts and these lawyers and these judges and these parliamentarians, 70% of whom are anti-Brexit, going through all these discussions, how can we prevent a clean Brexit? How can we ensure that this doesn't happen? How can we go back to the people and force them to vote again because we think they were stupid and racist and got it wrong the first time around? They must just be watching this. They must be watching this and thinking, what's happened to democracy in this country? And I just think that the, uh, the, the introduction of law into this process is an absolute disaster because what it, it, what it smacks off to me is there is this layer of society who are so used to getting their way in politics, who are so used to everything going their way for the past 30 or 40 years, that they are repulsed by the fact that in 2016 it didn't go their way. And now they will use their financial power, their legal power and their parliamentary power to ensure that it doesn't happen. I am amazed that there haven't been riots yet. That's the most amazing thing to do. Do you think there will be? I, I think there should be. Should be? Yes. Brendan, My, the you're thing, urging people I, onto the streets no, no, to smash no, no. up Vodafone and McDonald's. Hold on, violence. let me finish. No, <laughs> let me finish my sentence. When I look at the Gilets jaunes, who I have taken to the streets because um, Macron messed them around in relation to the eco-tax and various other things, what I continually think is, why have the British people been so patient? Now, this might sound alien to Sonia, because you live in a particular world, Sonia. We all do. But there are other yeah, but people But we all live in there. a world where you can't go and smash up but shops. But there, no, are, exactly. there are people... I, no, but hold on. There is a... F I'm not talking about smashing up shops. There is a fine well, what's tradition... A, what's a riot in there your... is a fine tradition in this country Brenda, of we've radical... we've already seen peaceful protests on both sides. There is a fine tradition in fine. this country... You've I'm going to finish my sentence. There is a riot. fine tradition in this country of radical protest, right from the, the levellers in the 1640s to the chartists in the 1840s to the suffragettes who did take direct action, physical action, when people's voices have been ignored. I think we have reached that level now. 
spot the lie. Well, that, this, is, this, <laughs> this is the problem. Um, that there's a lot that he says in that, which is, I mean, setting aside his uh, motivations for saying it, right? It's obviously publicity. Obviously, he has a wider political agenda and so on. The big problem is that people like that have been put in a position where they're telling large amounts of truth in an otherwise sort of political truth vacuum. There's a really interesting bit in in that interview. It goes on further. There's someone else in the panel who's like a very earnest left-wing Labour activist who I think actually was a Leave voter and has been placed in a terrible position vis-a-vis this entire discussion. And she says, yeah, well, you know, what matters to me most is, um, you know, welfare and wages and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, on the one hand, that's true. But Brendan O'Neill just comes back and says, they, people don't want politicians who are going to give them stuff, right? They don't want, like, some daddy to come along and behave. What they want is they want their democratic voice to be respected. And unfortunately, there's this major area of truth in all that. I mean, he has been accused of trying to incite riots, which, like, I understand what he's saying. I don't particularly want to see those riots because yeah. it's just it'll just be reaction, and we all know that. But what he is saying in that, like, long clip, it makes sense to me. Like, that's definitely how I understand this process going. Mm-hmm. And it will create a backlash and that's how people express their votes now do you know what I mean I think you're right people don't want politicians just to say oh here I've got this magic solution for all of your problems people are voting and I'll do it for you yeah Yeah. yeah. people are increasingly looking for their agency and their power Mm -hmm. because do you know what I mean we're living through this period of hyper capitalism where everyone feels disempowered and deeply alienated and people are pursuing a political agenda that's based on raw emotions like betrayal, mm-hmm. hatred, fear, like all of these things. And it's like it's just a real backlash against the establishment. And the more the, the courts are involved, the law is involved, the worse that that gets. Yeah. And it was interesting some of the reactions to it. Some of them were sort of like, arrest this man um, for calling for a riot. <laughs> Actually, some of the people who came up with sound response to pe- to this weren't necessarily the people I was expecting. So Adam Ramsey, who's a big Remainer, wants people's vote and all that kind of stuff, he did actually say, you can't say arrest someone for calling for a riot. But that's possibly because he went through experiences like the student movement, where all, like decent student activists were doing things like calling for riots. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's not the first time that a riot's been called for in the BBC. I'm sure there were interviews Mm. with prominent people at the time who called for riots over things like austerity. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, Len McCluskey's done stuff like that. Yeah, he said, like, openly break the law um, over the anti-trade union legislation. Yeah, and I see now that this is the thing: is like Nigel Farage is now being investigated by the police for saying that he was going to knife the pen pushers or something like that. Now, again, he's obviously like Brendan O'Neill, just responding to the situation, saying, "Wouldn't it be really good if I was investigated by the police for saying something anti-politician, right?" Mm. And he's gotten exactly what he's want, what he wants out of it. But this is also just the whole thing's becoming silly. There's never been a time in British politics where politicians weren't constantly talk, talking about stabbing people. Swords, axes. <laughs> it's a constant refrain yeah. in British politics. Everyone remembers um, Jess Phillips saying she was going to stab Corbyn in the front 
and all this, <laughs> you know, I mean, all this stuff. There's like a certain like they, they want to make themselves sound yeah. a bit hard with all this kind of mm. stuff. So they've all been at it yeah. for months. The idea for years, the idea that you can just, you know, that now we're in a special phase where nothing bad can ever be said about a politician is like an, a further extension of this weird authoritarian thing. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting when people were like making the example, like raising the example of Joe Cox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, an MP has actually been murdered by a right wing extremist, mm. but there hasn't actually been any proper commemoration of Joe Cox like any other civilised society would have had a street named after Joe Cox they would be honouring her memory in like a very very public way rather than using it as a like a political tool Uh, I know it's outrageous I mean in any other European country exactly society would be even parts that didn't want to would be forced to commemorate a fascist assassination Joe Cox wasn't killed by Brexit she was killed by a Nazi and yeah any other anti-fascist movement would have said, right, this person's our martyr now. Mm. And if she represents a cause, the cause she represents is anti-fascism. Mm. Um, whereas in in Britain, with this debate going on, she's been taken to represent, like, remaining in the EU, you know, and, and that her Nazi mm. murderer has been forgotten. Yeah, you were in a riot once, weren't you, David? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I like to show off. I like to show off a, a picture of me with blood spattered on my face when the police beat me up. It was at the at Bush's last visit to the UK mm. when he was a president. But I share that picture around a lot for two reasons. One is it makes me look cool because I've been beaten up by the police. Gives me some street cred. Gives me a bit of street cred. Yeah. Badly needed. And the other reason is that my face was much slimmer and prettier then. <laughs> In spite of the brutal assault. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I looked better beaten up than I do just having been like a lefty Aged. for ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I make I make a lot of that, um, and so you know we don't want me sent to jail with a pretty face like that, you know. No. Are you going to incite? Are we going to incite riots on this podcast? Definitely not over Brexit. Nah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd take almost any riot. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think listeners should just take it for granted that I call for a riot for all reasons and under all circumstances. But this is the thing. There's a bit in that BBC interview where the presenter then says, "Oh, I mean, we're not talking about like smashing up shops. That's as if that's terrible." But there's a big political tradition. Mm. of that type of direct action. Mm-hmm. The suffragettes, for example, which is a cause that, do you know what I mean, gets paraded around quite a lot, especially by the Liberal establishment. Mm. I mean, the suffragettes did things like that. I know, I know, and, and they're, they're, they're celebrated, again, in a very historical way by, like, Liberal Democrats and Tories and stuff yeah. as, as wonderful. Um, I mean, I have obviously been at the, the other end of, quote-unquote, bad language. The oh, amount yeah. of times I have been called a traitor on the internet. It's quite spectacular for having the audacity to uh, not vote for the Just SMP. The next, yeah, like yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, traitor. I also got called a slut because I didn't vote in the EU referendum. <laughs> 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 that, that was one of my favorite, favorite like bits of feedback. Oh, after, like after I said like I stayed in the EU ref, I looked at my Facebook messages and there was one. It was from a woman and she was like, "You stupid slut! The suffragettes died for your right to vote. You total whore!" Like it's was the implication that instead of voting, you were away shagging. <laughs> You were busy that day. You had a dick in your mouth and you couldn't vote. 
Okay. See if we're ever involved in a, like an abstention campaign because that could ha- there could be a second referendum with two bad options on the paper, right? I'd probably abstain from that. Please let's organise sluts for abstain. Yes. Sluts for abstain. Yeah. 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 Go out and shag some random instead of voting. <laughs> As a protest outside the uh, yeah. polling booth, but never enter the polling booth. <laughs> I think that's enter a woman <laughs> <laughs> or a man or whatever or whatever, like whatever your preference is. Like we are, it's twenty nineteen, right? Yeah. So whatever oh, you fancy. We've launched a movement, right? Do you know those pictures they had of Greta Thunberg outside the Swedish Parliament? Was like that. that was her a year ago. Mm-hmm. No, look what she's done, right? Mark this, this day. Mark this day. That has been launched from a cupboard. I mean, a picture of us in this cupboard, and this is where it started. This yeah. is where the great, you know, sluts for abstain movement began. Watch it happen. Do you know, does this not remind you a little bit of the broom cupboard from children's TV? This is very different from children's TV. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are less dicks and mouths in children's TV in general. Well, well, depends on the presenter. <laughs> so moving on from riots into another way of inciting riots... <laughs> of writing the word riot on a frilly shirt. Who did that? The Manic Street Preachers. The Manic Street Preachers in 1991. And um, back in the glorious 90s. Mm. So we are all like old, old and <laughs> Manic Street Preachers fans um, in different ways from like different generations, I get We're not a generation apart, the three of us. No. no. But there's enough of an age gap that separates us that we kind of came across the Manic Street Preachers in our own way. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe David, do you want to mention how you first got interested in the Manic Street Preachers? I, I well, I suppose uh, my brother's a couple of years older than me, so I suppose probably from him, from him listening to it in the mm. room next to mine, uh, and then kind of getting into it. And unsurprisingly, the first Manic album I was really into was the Holy Bible, and it was one of the few, like one of the few albums I've ever listened to. And the very first time I listened to it, I loved every single mm. track. Mm. It's a very rare yeah. experience because a lot of music grows on you or you know there's always a couple of duds on an album or yeah. something and it was that kind of rare almost religious experience of you know every song better than the last I can't believe it mm-hmm. so that, yeah. I, I suppose that's how I got really into the Manic shit yeah. I mean I think that the reason I mean if you don't like the Manic Street Preachers then a lot of this chat will be lost click out now yeah just <laughs> just skip this part but the reason I wanted to bring it in is I think that it's I mean it's interesting to me that so I got into the Manic Street Preachers when I was in my teens and that was a very big cultural reference point for me, like getting into punk and grunge and darker music, I guess, like when I sort of got out of the pop princess sphere, mm-hmm. which oh. I also loved. Do you know what I mean? I was an avid reader of Smash Hits back in the day. <laughs> well, Smash Hits is how I got into the Manix. Oh. So I was a big collector of Smash Hits and... They loved the Manic Street Preachers. They put them in that magazine all the time. Um, and I kept just looking at pictures of them with the blouses with Raya and Love and stuff all spray-painted on them. And I kept looking at pictures of them and I just I just thought, whatever this band sounds like, I already like it because whoever looks like this, I like. Oh. Yeah. It didn't matter what the music yeah. was. So I bought Generation Terrace and I put it on and was like... <gasps> Oh, it's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't like Guns N' Roses. I don't like Guns N' Roses. Um, And then I stuck with it and, um, yeah, you know, got into it. And Generation Terrace is definitely of its time, but every album has been so, so different. And that one was 
much more about pledging allegiance to this group rather than it actually being about the, the music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, like, for me, the aesthetic of Generation Terrorist is really beautiful because mm. you have these, like, four ostensibly straight-ish white guys who are kitted out in the most amazing makeup, big black eyeliner, red lips. Yep. They have, like, lipstick phrases written on their chest. Yep. They're wearing feather boas and leopard print, and it's just, they look beautiful. Yep. Like, they look confusing, mm. in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, when you're developing teenage sexuality, they're confusing because mm. they're very very girly but that came at a point I think where that would be quite shocking because they were from a very like very working class Welsh mining community Um, and I remember reading interviews with them when they were talking about what it was like to look like that in that place Mm -hmm. Um, so it felt like the Manics were always part of a counterculture for me it always felt like a counterculture it was slightly out of reach because I was a little bit too young to be there at the time kind of thing Mm. can't relate (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I remember when I heard the Holy Bible for the first time that loads of my then like kind of other cultural references came from there so when it mentioned like Harold Pinter or Sylvia Plath I then went and found out yeah like the days before the internet like in the library like who are these people? Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to know more and why they're so important. And there's like loads of references to quite high art mm-hmm. and literature in there that kind of like opened this gateway for me. Mm-hmm. And I also obviously had a videotape of the faster performance on top, top of the pops where they've got balaclavas on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was like up until Chris Morris's brass eye paedophilia episode. It was the most complained about yeah. thing on on BBC, TV. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I remember listening. I mean, the lyrics on the Holy Bible in particular were so wildly different than, you know, anything else that was coming out of particularly British music. I remember feeling that about them as well, that they were one of the kind of relatively few cultural phenomenons that kind of rescued Britain from Britishness. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I, I, think, I think if I lived in France, I would think, like, why, doesn't, why hasn't France produced a band as cool as the Manic Street Preachers? <laughs> And, like, in most things, it's, like, the total opposite of that. You look around the cultural scene in other European countries and it's just more interesting stuff is being being produced. Yeah. Yeah. But what was interesting about them at that time was every big musical phase or movement, um, Britpop and grunge and stuff, were very, very male. Even Mm -hmm. if they were... They did have theme, you know, with grunge or whatever. There was some bands that were, like... Kurt Cobain was obviously, like, not trying to push a very masculine image and the things they spoke about. But it was all very... You know, if you went to those shows, it was men and you had to deal with loads of men in the... You know, and... But the Manchester Preachers were... They didn't fit in in any of those movements. They were very hard to... um, They, like, rebelled against everything. And throughout their whole career, they really rebelled... One of the things that I find most fascinating about them is when they rebelled against their own audience when Richie left and they became huge. And they hadn't really sold records until that point. Mm. They'd sold magazine covers because they looked so great and they said mad things and they slashed their arms up. But they didn't really sell a lot of records until Design for Life. And I remember going to see them do like the it's like some greatest hits thing or a Holy Bible thing. And when they played... Anything after 1996, 
the majority of the room really enjoyed it and they've played anything before in 1996 the whole room stood there and there was these pockets of two and three goths <laughs> who would like be pogoing and then they would stand back and wait for like the mums and dads to have a nice time yeah because we went to see the Manics didn't we David yeah, the yeah. I can't remember what song it was they played but I remember like we were the only people really into it yeah. what was it it was something off the Holy Bible I can't I can't remember but I did I do th- I, I was, I'm always shocked by that when I've gone to see the Manics that I always assume that it's like almost hackneyed of Manic Street Preachers fans that they prefer the earlier stuff. And then you go to an actual mm. gig and you find that a lot of the, especially some of the later stuff, which has become quite banal, yeah, um, <laughs> is much more popular. And I find that really surprising. But I mean, this is, this is another thing that's always interested me about the Manics is they have a total disinterest in kind of musical novelty. So that Generation Terrorists is just, as you said, their take on Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Gold Against the Soul is kind of weird, but I suppose it's in a kind of transitional phase of music in general. Holy Bible is just the Manics does grunge. And then the couple of albums after that uh, are Manics Repeaters' take on Britpop. So there's a funny thing going on where they, they never claim like musical innovation no. to, to a great kind no. of degree. And I find that slightly refreshing in a way. Yeah, well, they were, but it, that kind of goes back to what Kat was talking about with all the liner notes and all the references of, of previous culture because they always talked about, or they always certainly, to me, embodied and inspired an idea of like you becoming a product of the culture that you're shown. So the culture that they're given and they've put it to, you know, they've absorbed that and and regurgitated that and turned that album out, then that album out, then that album out. Until obviously they've become like completely uninspired Mm. other than like... Maybe it's nice to go on tour or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, not like I've not listened to like the last couple of records. No, mm. I mean, why would you? Why would you? <laughs> I mean, I loved uh, Journal for Plague Lovers, and it yeah, sounds like such yeah, a cliche to say, "Well, that's because it's you know the the last lyrics and all that kind of stuff." But see, to be honest, there must be something in that creative process that works mm-hmm. because converting those lyrics into music has created their most interesting record for Absolutely. God knows how many years. And Richie didn't have anything to do with the music. Yeah. So it's not... If Richie had just presented those lyrics as poems, they wouldn't. Yeah. you wouldn't have those... It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, there's a magic between the way that Richie wrote lyrics and James Dean Bradfield's ability to take them and make them into a song. James Dean yeah, Bradfield's a genius. I mean, yeah. he's truly an yeah. unsung hero yeah. of British rock and roll. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think that... the. The Manics to me were always like, I mean, quite a shocking band. Like, I have a really vivid memory of like being in the car with my dad and there being a newspaper and looking at this newspaper and it was when Richie had cut himself mm-hmm. um, and like this big sort of like splash about it and just that being like a really dramatic thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like that kind of like real, like they really kind of like went against the grain. I think that especially like I mean the image of like Generation Terrorist. Do you know what I mean that really pretty boy look that they had? Yeah. Do you know what I mean they but had But with this... an edge of violence. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like and that violence was never about other people. It was, you know, remember Richie saying something about a guy um asking about his arm in a pub or like trying to noise like calling him a poof or something in a pub and like he you know, like took up his sleeve and said, If this is what I can do to myself, think about what I can do to your face. <laughs> and he would never have done anything to that guy's face. Yeah. But I think at that time, especially um self mutilation as it was called mm. was so bizarre. Yeah. Like it was so and they were really the poster boys for he was the poster boy for the 
sudden panic about young teenagers in the 90s that was Prozac Nation and Nirvana and Mm. suddenly everybody was depressed and listening to rock music. Yeah, there is, like, definitely, I think Prozac Nation's another good example of that aesthetic Mm. and kind of, like, glamour, depression sort of vibe of the 90s alternative Mm. culture. A precursor to Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) No? Yeah. Elizabeth Wurzel is the original Tumblr girl. That is a, that's a really... Write that down. That's a hot take. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder now if pop culture has really lost its ability to to be shocking um, or to go against the grain. I think this is in part to do with neoliberalism, of course. I think that it's very commercially rewarding to have culture that only replicates where we are in society. Mm -hmm. So just like neoliberalism, I think, drives culture to just reproduce what is already there. I mean, how I understand culture and art is that it's there to break boundaries, it's there to break taboos, it's there to push things out, it's there to not conform. But I think when I look at the majority of kind of big stars and things, they often just replicate like what's already there. Mm -hmm. I, I, I always have this feeling that like uh, popular culture has stagnated and lost its kind of forward drive. But I could be wrong. It's just that it feels to me that I was thinking about this earlier today that hip hop emerged as like an insurgent musical form in the late 1980s. By the middle of the 1990s, it was basically hegemonic. It became even more so in the early 2000s with people like Eminem, 50 Cent, Snoop Dogg, and all that, the kind of big corporate mm-hmm. uh, uh, rappers. It's still the biggest form of music in the world. Mm-hmm. It's still selling more records than any other music, and it's and it's the end of the next century. Has there been another time where, uh, in the history of the development of pop music, where the same genre is hegemonic across three decades? I, I mean, I can't, I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough to answer that, but I feel like since the birth of youth culture proper in like the sixties or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Maybe youth culture wasn't born in the sixties. That's controversial, but I felt like there was a much choppier development of musical forms early on. Mm. And now I don't see a lot of kind of like very distinctive new genres. There's a lot of kind of different types of hip hop and stuff like that. I need to, I just also need to say this because I've been horrified ever since I've seen him. <laughs> and I need to get someone else's take because I'm actually not that in contact with pop, like pop music now. I, I've, I've kind of, part of me else I don't listen to music radio, so I've kind of like fallen out of, of the loop. But I, someone introduced me to something called Post Malone, and I was fucking stunned by it. Have you seen this guy? Uh, yeah, I've heard of that, so, but I haven't listened to it. I, I can't, I cannot bring myself to understand what the appeal is, <laughs> right? And I don't want to sound like a dick, right? But, or an old person, yeah, right? But the music's this sort of really slow hip hop with very few lyrics in it. Yeah, mumbled. Yeah, hideously, right? He is like, I don't want to sound like nasty, but he's like a really ugly guy who looks like he's really smelly. Do you know what I mean? I can practically smell him through the fucking YouTube video sometimes, right? <laughs> I'm um, looking up a picture right he's, he's He seems like a tragic guy. Like, apparently, he's like one of the biggest artists in the world, right? He has very little money because he's obviously got a shit ton of hangers on who are leeching it off him. He, get, he went into a contract with that Miller Lite this is the most worst, like, insipid beer in the world. 
and they built like a vending machine in his house so that he could drink Miller Lite all day. Oh. He clearly has like a serious addiction. He's drunk all the time on Miller Lite, and <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, which it... takes ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and the music, I mean, and the music sounds like he's drunk all the time on Miller Lite. It's really slow and ponderous. But this guy's selling out these huge shows. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I, it's the first time in my life that I really felt like that, where I felt like liking this past young mm. people, you liking this is an excuse. It makes no sense. It's a meritless case. <laughs> <laughs> so I've now finally entered. That territory. That territory uh, of being middle-aged and upset young people (laughs) for liking tasteless music and tasteless artists. And you love Brexit. You've become gammon. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Although he's kind of gammon. He's got face face tattoos. You can't be gammon with face tattoos. Oh, I'm sure you can. Face tattoos are what normal tattoos used to be. I've seen guys on EDL marches with face tattoos. Are they gammon, though? <laughs> uh, yeah, good question. I don't no, know. I think... Anyway. That's... So, I think, you know, you were talking about, like, not... How do you come in contact with, like, modern culture? What are young people listening to? Young people are listening to YouTube. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, it's, that's, that's the platform mm. that all of this stuff is coming from. Was Post Malone a SoundCloud rapper? Is that where he came from? Quite possibly. I don't know enough about him really to, to I mean, I do still love pop music. I, I love Lana Del Rey. Mm. I'm not going to hide it. Like, I think she is, like, the perfect, like, example of capitalist realism. I just really enjoy her. Because to me, like, Lana Del Rey is, seems a bit rebellious because she's not doing it. I mean, she is playing the trad wife and all of her songs are like, baby, I love you, daddy, don't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are though like yeah. oh like yeah, yeah, yeah. oh I'm so lonely and sad and everything she sings in like she's like on Valium or something mm-hmm. yeah I really I really enjoy that because it just feels very feels like it's kind of prickly do you know what I mean to like this mm-hmm. aesthetic of Lana comes under a lot of criticism because she is very trad mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's this problem we've had for years where there isn't there isn't a kind of left wing form of rebellion in popular culture that I can think of, but the right has been able to say fraudulently or not that they are engaged in in cultural rebellion because mm-hmm. the things that they're doing and saying are outraging at least a section of the population. Is is there anything like that that you could describe as like left wing or progressive that's that's really like pushing those cultural boundaries? No. Well, do you want me to do my rendition of that song, the Hillary Clinton song? <laughs> this is my fight song. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. It's like Hillary Clinton's sort of anthem. It's really brutal when you watch that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, B, I'm interested in what you were saying about it's like it's YouTube that's kind of this. What's your take? New rock and roll? Uh, <laughs> yeah, if I was an editor of uh, what used to be the Melody Maker, that's that would be the scene I'd be trying to push right now, that YouTube is a new rock and roll. Uh, obviously, YouTube has been there for some time. Mm. Um, and lots of people are famous because of that platform. And obviously, there's like, you know, there was Vine and TikTok and stuff like that. But YouTube, I think, has a really incredible power is much more controlled than it used to be in terms of like it's obviously has a system of promoting certain people and not or certain content and there's lots of things you can't do on it anymore but i think one of the an interesting cultural figure from that 
in terms of like crossing an old technology or an old social media into a new one is is Jeffrey Star, that guy that was on MySpace. Like, He's like the most famous person on MySpace. Do um, you have MySpace, David? No. No. Oh, no way. <laughs> so weird. But you know what MySpace is, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Jeffree Star was this person who essentially was like a look in a sense so he's super androgynous loads of makeup pink hair big pink eyebrows he was really really thin and tall and his whole kind of like aesthetic was like cupcakes and knives and serial killers and you know princesses and stuff um and it was really a time where like that i think that thing of lana del rey type that whole thing of myspace was um Oh my god! I just want to kill myself. Oh, yeah, you know it was yeah, all yeah. very like it's all very sad. Like everything's so hard. Yeah, like evil. Um, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And in that in that way, you know, it was kind of tedious for somebody my age at the time. But everybody had everybody was friends with Jeffrey Star, and he started making really dreadful music, like really that kind of talky music where you go along with the beat and you know, it's, <laughs> it's really bad that. I remember you played me a video it is like... it's dreadful but he was all about these looks he was all about this androgynous kind of like nasty cat looking thing and he's kind of like morphed into this like insanely rich makeup cosmetic brand owner right. who has you watch his Instagram and he'll do like a store opening he'll open a makeup shop that he sells his products in in America and there are 20,000 kids mm. screaming for this person mm. and this person sells makeup yeah. but that I mean that's their product that's the product they physically sell mm-hmm. But what they're also selling is, is him, yeah. his image, his look, the things he likes, the thing, and he has no real political message, like other than the one that all of the YouTubers say, which is like, which feeds into what we're talking about, of like all of all of their message is be yourself, yeah, be yourself, just as you know, find your happiness, find your passion, do what you know, just you do you, whatever it is that's important to you, you just be yourself, yeah. Which is like the worst possible advice you could ever give anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Never be yourself. Be yourself. Yeah. What are you talking about? How am I not myself? Yeah. Like, oh my god, what's that film? Um oh, Dustin Hoffman. Um it's the big philosophical one. I Heart Huckabees. Oh yeah. Incredible film. And there's this amazing scene in it where there's a big kind of philosophical scene and they just keep saying, How am I not myself? When am I not myself? When am I not myself? Oh, yeah, to, to be yourself. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's how do you even sell that as a concept? But that's all of those YouTubers are pushing the same thing. Oh, I'm just being myself. YouTube is a way for me to give you my authentic self. These are, this is just, you know, if you work hard. So, Jeffree Star, as a kind of ultimate image of this, his whole thing is that he was really poor and he had this really tough childhood and he worked really, really hard. Worked really, really hard, right? He got really good at makeup. Mm. And he got really good at total narcissism. Mm. And he got really good at... Being himself. Being himself. (laughs) And that was at a time when, like, being someone like him... Like, fair enough, the way that he looked was, you you know, even the way that I looked when I was a teenager was 
you know, it would be zero now, like really nothing now. But at the time, it was like, if you wanted to dress like I dressed, you were going to take shit in the street. And that was just how it went. Yeah. So I understood that. Um, and I chose to play that game. So this, his whole thing is like, I've worked really hard and now I'm a multimillionaire and here are my three houses and here's my fleet of cars and here's my millions and, you know, millions and millions of dollars just in handbags. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, handbags? You got me to watch this, like... This, <laughs> What's a handbag? This thing that's so meta is like one YouTube star, uh, Shane Dawson. Yeah, if I remembered right. Yes. So Shane Dawson, who's this other massive YouTube star. I mean, these people have like millions of subscribers to their channel. Yeah. Like 20 I mean, million. Shane Dawson has 20 million. Which is wild. Yeah. Um, he goes and interviews, does a documentary about Jeffree Star and he goes into the handbag collection and it's like... It has its own vault. Oh my like, God. Like, there's a security guard outside of it. It's <laughs> and like the peak decadence. Yeah. But, it's re- but what's really interesting about that whole culture, so Shane Dawson is about to do a new documentary about Jeffree Star that's coming out on Tuesday. And it will be, like, it's about part of that community. So these all of these people are kind of like, not Shane Dawson, but there's a bunch of people that are really focused on makeup and aesthetics. And the people that are really crushing it on YouTube are makeup people Uh so they're just they're advertisers but their whole thing is like i'm just giving you my honest opinion Uh these are my honest thoughts here's some new product every week new 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 and here's all my honest thoughts you know i just want to keep it really real with you guys like direct um contact with the camera Uh like it's so these people are your friends Uh these people are your friends yeah and they just want the best for you and they want the, the best for you in your true self i'm authentic you can be authentic the way that we'll both share that authenticity is if you buy the stuff yeah if you have something in your hand somewhere bullshit in you know in your crummy flat in Mary Hill my flat the products that I have bought that they've told me to buy yeah. then I'm the same as them right yeah. so you know what I mean it's that like a bum on the street the president of America and Elizabeth Taylor none of them can have a better Coca-Cola than the other mm. you know what I mean it's yeah, like yeah. it's the yeah. it's that yeah. thing right I mean I wonder what the psychological impact of this stuff is like that's what I'm interested in so I don't I'm not going to buy into like the moral panic of social media, like as if it's the biggest evil, because people do do that. Yeah. But like, what what does like so in YouTube or even like on Instagram and everybody does it. Anyone who is putting themselves online is performing themselves for an audience. Yeah. Like that is something that the human species has never had to deal with on that scale before. Like it's not. I'm not saying it's inherently good or inherently bad. It's just something that's happening to people. Mm-hmm. We are now. So there's people who are grown up in the digital native generation mm-hmm. where you're encouraged to like promote yourself to to <laughs> be yourself, yep. and that that is part of the product you're selling. So this like performative self being put out there constantly. What does that do to our psychology and our concept of? individual it's it's hyper individualistic and it you know what being popular in something like youtube or instagram creates is money like there's clicks on youtube equal that equals cash Mm. clicks on instagram doesn't equal cash in the same way but why there's an obsession with numbers Mm. There's an obsession with growth. Mm. Like in the social media world, because it's not physical, there's no end to your growth. Yeah. So if you go onto YouTube 
and you see um, someone like Shania Twain, right, who is, like, colossal. And her videos will have... Did I say Shania Twain? Uh-huh. Shakira. I meant Shakira. Did they not once do a song together? Maybe they did. <laughs> <laughs> but Shakira, Jennifer Lopez, that are actually, like... They have, like, 150 million views on a video. Do you know what I mean? Like, these are numbers that you can't compute. Mm. If you thought of £150 million, you can kind of, like, imagine what that would turn into. You can imagine property, handbags, cars, holidays, whatever. But these numbers have no limit. So the more that you are yourself, the bigger, 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 bigger you can get. And it's actually really, like, there was an amazing... I don't even really know what it means, right? But PewDiePie, the biggest, the mm-hmm. second biggest YouTuber. I've yeah. heard of him. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, and you'll have heard of him from being name-dropped in the New Zealand Shore by the New Zealand yes. Shore. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. yeah. Right? So the last yeah. thing he said before he went on the yeah. massacre was subscribe to PewDiePie. Yeah. So there's always been a bit of a kind of subtext that PewDiePie might be a Nazi, and he's had to yeah. refute that a few times. I don't think he's a Nazi. I'm also not a fan of him, so I don't even know why I'm defending him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about PewDiePie. But... I think he is a Nazi, and I say that having no idea who he is. Fuck it, PewDiePie's a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, <laughs> PewDiePie and this Indian gaming channel were in this huge battle to be the biggest YouTubers. <laughs> like, you can go onto YouTube and put in their names next to the word subscriber live counter, uh-huh. and you'll see two graphs that show growth, exponential growth. Numbers, 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 numbers. And like... There was a beauty YouTuber who was cancelled this year and he lost a million subscribers overnight. Oh, my God. He he got a lot of them back. He had 60 million YouTube subscribers. He was um, called out by another beauty YouTuber. What for? Somebody made this video about him that was, these are all the ways in which James Charles is, like, problematic and awful. Um, And overnight, like, audiences were siding and the way that they were siding was clicks. Yeah. So they're subscribing and unsubscribing. They're unsubscribing from one person, subscribing to another person. Yeah. So the woman that made the video wins. And you see that with numbers. Like, that's the way that you rate how somebody is good, bad, cancelled, yeah. accepted, yeah. Yeah. trusted, authentic, God, that's, real. That's great, it? In it. See, this whole thing is And yet like... I cannot stop watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a low period for me in my work, but... <laughs> but this whole thing is, it's when you're talking about it and it's not really a world that I have, like, dipped into much. Like, I've seen It's the insomnia's world. Yeah. It's the okay. world of insomnia's. Yeah. So this whole world feels completely unimaginable to me. But it's happening. Do you know what I mean? I think, like, even 10 years ago, if someone had said there's going to be a guy who gets famous on YouTube for selling makeup and has this rock star status and lives in a billion-dollar house and has, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars' worth of handbags. People would just... People would never be able to conceive of that. Mm-hmm. PewDiePie yeah. is even stranger because he's not selling or doing anything. No. He's just a slightly awkward guy on what YouTube. What he does is play games. Yeah. So that... Like, a lot of the people that got really famous or, re- like, in, you know... Was, incels right I mean who are the people that are like in their houses playing computer games competitive you know obsessive compulsive levels Mm. these are people that don't have interactions with human beings Mm. they have interactions with usernames Mm. you know but this like I mean 
this for me is like real this is capitalist realism mm-hmm. do you know what i mean that it's easier to imagine these things than it is to imagine like a different alternative model of society yeah like and that's where we are now like how are these things like this idea of like being yourself and that being a way to make money and to be like an exponential growth to have who you are as a person valued by how many likes you Mm -hmm. can get and how many subscribers you can get yeah it's just this is just it's the same stuff repackaged because what's really difficult about it i think is when you see young people who really, really idealise these people and the thing that their big takeaway is is the same lie that everyone's been told all the other decades, which is if you just work hard, mm. just work mm. hard. Yeah. Just work hard, just pull the line, you know, be a good person and you too can have yeah. all of this money and yeah. all of this stuff and all of this influence. But I, I, this I, is a grift. Yeah, and I, but I agree with what you're saying, Kat, in terms of there is a, a profound cultural change in it. Human beings always inhabit different identities, right, in front of different audiences. Mm. You're a very different person in front of your parents than the yeah. one you are in front of your friends. It's very strange that we now have a, a, a society where large, not everyone, but very large proportions of that society have established a public persona mm-hmm. in front of an audience, yeah. some of whom they have no personal relationship to. And there are probably many millions of people who have quite substantial audiences mm. constructed in this way with a lie of, of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. And what, yeah, I agree that, that that must lead to some kind of like psychosis of people separating out different parts of their personality. But that's what you said there about that thing where this guy is cancelled is fascinating to me because there's a whole debate about whether cancel culture is a real thing, right? Because like a lot of stuff that you see on the internet you don't really see it in in sort of flesh life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, right? Here's the thing. I think it is real, but it's restricted to certain social contexts. And increasingly, it's restricted to certain commercial activities. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is someone who... I am certain that you will increasingly see people being, quotes, cancelled as an act of industrial sabotage. Mm -hmm. And actually... Look, there's there's always been a culture of labelling people and slandering people and stuff like that. But I, I can't help but feel that it's related as well to um, a wider phenomenon of smearing people. So, for example, I saw Toby Young today had tweeted that Philip Hammond, the former Chancellor, is, quotes a vile anti-Semite because Philip Hammond had said that Boris Johnson was backed by a group of financiers who were betting on no deal. Mm-hmm. So Toby Young very casually said, Philip Hammond is an anti-Semite. An accusation which might have destroyed your might have destroyed Toby Young's career had it not already been destroyed by something else. Um, but that would have been the end of a journalist 10 years ago. Yeah. To say that a very centrist establishment politician was a vile anti-Semite would have killed your career. Um I think that there has been a rapid like casualization of making the most extreme. Yeah. Uh, accusations against people and that the internet has obviously facilitated Mm. that Mm -hmm. because it's accepted now that you have a certain license in that world to make throwaway accusations that you wouldn't otherwise in daily in daily life the problem with the internet in that sense is that especially high profile people that are being so these for example these youtubers they are fans or people that keep up with that kind of drama as it is called are like they're detectives so someone will do something in the present day and then whoever they are these group of people 
will go through this person's Twitter yeah. and find a tweet yeah. from six years ago yeah. that makes yeah. a joke about a group of people. Yeah. Boom, that tweet comes back and they are finished. Yeah. I mean, and I, then I, comes like a, you know, an eye notes apology or a <laughs> grey hoodie wearing, no makeup, you know, put on your real glasses, apology to camera. Uh-huh. And that is part of the cycle of the drama because what's being sold then is a soap opera. And that's really what the audience love. Yeah. The audience mm-hmm. love rivalry, taking sides. Downfall. They love to watch the Disney. downfall. People, people love that. Like yeah, I've been obsessively following Caroline Calloway for a while. Yeah. Um. I don't know if you, either of you, have been mm-hmm. following this. I think we've discussed maybe. it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So she is an Instagrammer who most recently has gained infamy because her be- ex best friend sold like her side of the story to the cut. Um. I mean, I. I've been looking at the subreddits. Do you know what I mean? I'm in deep <laughs> on this stuff and I can't stop looking. Like, what is that? It's, it's soap opera. It's drama. Do you know what I mean? And I think all of those things, like EastEnders, one of the ways that something like EastEnders maintains... Something like EastEnders maintains popularity because people feel comforted by mm. having always been on the telly. Mm. And it's it's proper Britain, in it? It's proper Britain. And they never talk about politics on EastEnders, do yeah. they not? Have they mentioned Brexit yet? No! <laughs> It's on the BBC. (laughs) Danny Dyer. Danny Dyer makes some excellent comments. Where's Cameron? South of France with his trotters up. (laughs) I mean that. Dyer. I like your Danny Dyer. Uh, I love doing a Danny Dyer. (laughs) But the reason that these shows and these exhibitions of other people's lives are exciting is because you feel safe in comparison. Mm. But the the frisson of fear that it installs is also like you too could be cancelled. Yeah, uh, this is this is the problem I have with cancel culture is that it destroys solidarity. Of like, course, absolutely. Like so, as soon as you start to, I mean, Mark Fisher wrote about this, but like mm. as soon as you start to inject the sort of sub feelings of like guilt and fear in people, you cannot build solidarity across people because everyone feels guilty or feels afraid. Yeah. I mean, it just destroys all that. And I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't be like that certain behaviours shouldn't be addressed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think the best way to do it is through, like, collectively, like, identifying the structures that replicate these things. And I also suspect that the people most driven by a fear of being cancelled are the most militant cancels. I mean, that's that almost sounds like a clichéd thing to say, but it is the people um, who, who fear that they'll be kicked out of whatever social circuit or whatever. So do you think it's like a projection thing? I think it's partly that, yeah. So people who are like driving the cancel bus are like just driving away from their own... Yeah, misdemeanours. Their own blackface photographs, for example. (laughs) Or dodgy tweets, that sort of thing. Hmm. I think that 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 might be true. There's a PhD in that for someone. Uh I mean, I think that the cancel culture has damaged the ability for provocation in art. Like, Mm. I do think Mm. that. I think that it's... I remember, like, so the punk movement, like, I think of that band Crass, very, very, like, brutal image where their logo was, like, a Christian cross 
with a swastika and an Uruboss, like mm-hmm. the snake uh-huh. in its tail. It's a really like fascinating logo. You don't really get that anymore because people are too scared to go near it. And I think in pop culture especially, because if you get cancelled, it has significant consequences on your... It can have consequences on your finances. Of course, like but your also... your financial position. But yes and no, and I think people have... I think if... So someone like Marilyn Manson used a lot of kind of fascistic-esque imagery or aesthetics in a lot of his artwork but has the references and the intelligence to mm. really, really back mm. up what he's doing. So it's not... Marilyn Manson obviously was like a shock rocker in that old school way, but the intelligence of his art and his lyrics, the the kind of schlocky metal stuff was really just to get that in kids, you know, to, to become huge, right? Yeah. So at one point, Marilyn Manson was like the pinnacle of fear, right? Yeah. Up until Columbine, really. Yeah. It was like the most feared thing in America, which yeah. is like the idea that a rock singer yeah, really strange could be though, a, a figure of fear yeah. now is yeah. is quaint, really. Yeah. Yeah. But when you you know like not that long ago, really, it was like twenty years ago, maybe, which is a long time in in modern culture. But he was smart enough to be able to talk about what he was doing, and the layers of references that he was using were really really involved. Most of your most people and most rock stars are not going to be able to be operating at that level. Crass could do it. Yeah. Throb and Gristle could do it. Throb and Gristle is a really interesting um, group to even talk about in terms of the way that Genesis was portrayed in Casey's book. Yeah. Cozy's book. But somehow still has clearance to be remit, like seen as and upheld as a provocative artist. Yeah. So who gets who gets through and who doesn't, I'm not sure what the rules are. Yeah. But the other side of that is that there's just loads and loads of stuff that everybody just was like, oh, well, you know, it was just a different time. And oh, well, you know, it was just um, it was just a joker. It was just art or whatever. That Actually, there was lots of people at that time who didn't accept that answer, but there was nowhere for them to have that opinion. Uh-huh. So the Internet provides people a place to have their opinion and to have their opinion uh, galvanised by other people who share that opinion. So Reddit or, I mean... Less so for Chan, but do you know what I mean <laughs> places? You know, but Tumblr, MySpace, yeah, you know, yeah. Instagram, yeah. Facebook, places where people who had a counter argument to a subversive art form, who maybe were like, "Oh, I don't see that as subversive at all. I see that as like part of the same problem that it's meant mm. to be um, rebelling against." There's more space now for people to say. Actually, that was problematic. That's problematic. That's problematic. And you know, maybe there is a space where some people do feel like the way things are being spoken about is that you can't have a laugh anymore and you can't mm. be pro- provocative or shocking. But actually, like I think there's a different type of thing that's happening, and maybe I think at the moment there is a clash of like I don't know, like too sensitive or too. I don't believe in calling things out, right? I do believe in calling people into a conversation about, like, here's a different way of looking at what you're talking about and actually do understand that, like, women or or people of colour or people with disabilities, actually, that's just not okay. Like, it's just not cool to be using that language or presenting that thing or whatever. But the more that people who don't have, that haven't traditionally had, like, much space to have their opinions heard, the more space that they take up, the more, you know, people that have always had all the space feel like they're now being allowed less space. So, of course, they're going to attack women and people of colour and trans people. They've always been there. 
you know what I mean? Like, all people have always been there. It's just that they've got more places to um, find each other and galvanise so that it's not a subset, you know, a secret subsection of society that's over there. Um, it's actually um, about visibility and, you know, taking up space and having as much opportunity as other people have always had. Do you know what I ponder a lot in relation to this is, I was thinking a lot about controversial comedy after watching that Netflix Dave Chappelle thing, right? And... I wonder sometimes if, is it inherently valuable to have, do you know a, com- a, a comedy show like that one or like a lot of like some of Frankie Boyle's stuff, what it is is drawing, say, like a couple hundred people into a room and then having like an organised, time-constrained, space-constrained public bonfire of taboos, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That everyone can... can And everyone feels um, drawn into it and they're slightly excited to be doing it, slightly horrified that they're doing it, mm-hmm. laughing at a joke about, you know, Michael Jackson or, or whatever, right? And that that is the whole point of the cultural practice of a, a, a comedy uh, show like that. But that inherently implies that everyone who's laughing at it... Like, see that Dave Chappelle show, right? Mm-hmm. That's a woke audience. If they weren't, they wouldn't be laughing. Mm. Right? See if it was a bunch of right-wing people who really hated trans people and stuff like that. They'd just be like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're like, yeah, fuck them, right? It wouldn't be funny. It's funny because the people in the room know that they're not supposed to be laughing at it. And they're the sort of people who probably largely live in kind of professional or semi-professional working environments where... Th- that a certain code of modern ethics is expected of them, and it's exciting to to transgress from it for a limited period of time in a limited area. I mean, I, I to be honest, I think I broadly think that's a culturally necessary thing to happen. I think it will always happen. I mean, I think that that's that used to be a space that the left inhabited. Yeah. Right. So, like, taking the cultural norm and like really breaking it down. So, even if you go back to like um, the Weimar Republic uh-huh. and like cabaret and things like that, the way that the, the cultural icons would be subverted for comedy in a way that was that felt kind of dangerous. Yeah. Um, and even like more, there's more modern examples of that, but that's the one that just kind of springs to mind just now. What worries me generally about like particularly the left and progressive politics is that we've kind of become the Mary Whitehouse and mm. um, so like the kind of the force of censorship the the kind of the people who are trying to enforce these unwritten rules that nobody nobody knows what the rules are about like what gets you cancelled what doesn't get you cancelled mm-hmm. like what can you say why is it okay for someone to say that and not for another person these why is it okay are... to say it in private as, as 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 vast numbers of people are doing but not yeah. say it in public yeah. yeah so do you know what I mean like I feel like the left was always about pushing cultural barriers and like breaking these taboos and that was part of progressive politics whereas now we try and like shut things down I think that especially when it comes to like discussions on like sexuality the left has become very mm, yeah pearl clutching kind Neurotic, of, yeah. yeah like oh god that's too sexy yeah. like I think the left I don't know if it's like yeah. being scarred by so many sex scandals there have been a lot do you know what I mean yeah. though like I feel like it's the kind of like Mary Whitehouse model panic has like that's become part of the left's identity and I think that's dead unhelpful for for actually being culturally relevant Uh I don't necessarily know fully what you mean by that but I think what is you know we talk about this all the time but what is brutally damaging for uh, whatever the left wing is is the 
amount of time that why do the, why does the right wing get on with things because it talks very basically in small words that are repeated over and over again in big primary colours. Well, it just says nonsense things, slogans that sound really good. Make America great again. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. Uh, but they, they're winning, right? Uh, uh, because people on the internet are spending hours and hours and hours agonising over... Now, there are, of course... Language is super, super, super important. And, you know, if you're being harassed on the internet or threatened on the internet, that's just words, right? But of course it's not, right? Real. Uh. But the nitpicking policing of language, where the line between harassment and offence and um, semantics and grammar and these are invisible lines, yeah. right? And they vary between individuals and individuals. Uh -huh. And that's why it spends so much time getting lost on threads about you can't say this and you can't say that because there's no there's no rules about it. And it is about your... There's an easy way to, like, talk about things without offending anyone. Like, there is easy ways to do that. But people are inherently... People, you know, the bottom line is that people will inherently never, ever get on. Mm. There's never... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and that's all, I think that's all right. Like, I don't... Do you know what I mean? I think that, as well, on the left, there's a sense of, like, to build solidarity, you have to get on with people. Like, I'm not really... I've got enough friends. Yeah. But my, you can't. My, my friends is full. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in this cupboard. <laughs> um, but, do you know what I mean? People don't have to get on. I mean, speaking personally... When I gave up being offended, like as part of my identity, um, I really do you know what I mean though? That's the classic kind of lefty trope that mm. there's a state of permanent outrage mm. and that everything is offensive. But like, I think there's like a currency to that because it's somewhere to put a feeling if a lot of your life is lacking in autonomy and lacking in power, then that sense of being able to have a right to reply on the internet. Is it something? It binds you to a tribe of other people who are also like outraged. Pretending to be outraged. Yeah. I mean, and like you see it all the time, actually, regardless of like left or right, I mean, there's a sense of like permanent outrage. Yeah. And I just, I just don't think that it's helpful to be like permanently outraged. Definitely not healthy. But again, it's like, where are the lines in that? So, do you know what I mean? I saw it quite classically uh, on a friend's timeline last night where they posted an interview with whatever kind of, I can't remember who it was, but it was a female singer and their nipple through their top was quite uh, obvious. And a bunch of people had commented on the thread, oh, brilliant interview and like, what an amazing artist she is. But get that nipple away. But one guy, and I clicked on his profile and it was like, you know, Gammon. old guy. And he said, uh, oh, must have been quite cold when they took our picture then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Thinking. <laughs> and he just like <clears throat> and uh, the person the, the OP had said, um, mate, like I know you think that's a joke, but it's dead TDSA. Like everybody else on this thread is like talking about what she's said and yeah. what she's doing and or yeah. what she's her intelligence and you've done the nipple joke. Yeah. And of course, what is the immediate comeback 
Take a joke. So, yeah. Take a joke. Yeah. Sorry that you have offended. I've offended you. Oh, I've yeah. offended you. I was just having a joke, right? And like, is there any way to uh, justify what he said? But I know there's like, I see things online, and I'm like, oh, it's just a joke. Hey, it's just a joke. But one man's outrage is another person's, yeah. you know, joke. So like, there's just there can't be a line for that. The only thing really on an individual level that like I ever try and do is just like it sounds super cheesy, right? But it's just like, hi, what's your name? What's life like for you? Do you know what I mean, like, don't argue yeah. the talk. If someone tells you who they are, just go ahead. That's who they are. Like that's their pronoun. That's their name. That's whatever they fucking want to do. Yeah. If you know. Darren the gammon wants to talk about some lassie's nipple, then and I mean, like, no, I'm not interested in that, but trying to change his mind about why that's a tedious, boring male thing to say is not, it's going to want to make him do it more, right? Mm. So, you know, in that moment, that being a very, like, classic misogyny of a man about some women is, like, either we say nothing, so we're just kept in silence, as usual. Say something, laughed at. Say something, he goes away and looks for something. He's been humiliated slightly, so he looks for some other thread where he can, like, talk about nipples, yeah. slag off some girl's nipples again. <laughs> Do you know what I mean it's like there's no there's nowhere to win for that? Yeah, that's that's what I mean about like the only way to really address these things or to the only way that I can think about these things is on like a big level, like in the abstract. If I spent my time coming back to every negative comment I got. Yeah, but I mean you're in a different sphere from anything that I'll ever I mean, I've said that to you a thousand times. Like I do not understand how you've ever coped with the internet the way that it has treated there you. There was a time recently when uh I was tweeting furiously and I got a message from Fee that was just, get off the internet. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I see that as unwell behaviour. <laughs> I do, because really, you know, and Russell Brand talks about all this stuff so brilliantly, but it's like, you know, everybody understands that likes and all that stuff have a chemical reaction in the brain, right? They have developed that to <laughs> make you want to finger yourself, right? Yeah. So that's what it does. Right? <laughs> it's a virtual fingering. Half <laughs> some strangers, right? Yeah. That's what it's doing. But it is an addiction. It is a, a blessing and a curse. And I think there's what you were saying about, like, what, what are the effects of that? Buckle up. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You're going to see the effects of that. Mm. I think you are slightly seeing the effects of that. But the real ramifications on human brain chemistry uh. and uh, social structure on, on what that... I mean, how many years has it been now that kids that are little can work an iPad? Yeah. Like, uh. in the history of evolution, not very long. But in reality, I mean, how long have iPads or whatever been kind of normal? Ten years? Ten years. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's enough time that that's having effects. You know, kids that, that don't, that maybe don't physically start speaking until, like, late, you know, like, you would just call that to be late, but they can work on iPads and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, that's not shocking anymore. Yeah. I find that profoundly shocking and sad. Yeah. But, do you know what I mean, will there be a group of people that are like, <laughs> okay, grandma, do you know what I mean? Like, oh my God, you don't know, you know, like, I laugh at my dad because he doesn't fully understand that, like, the, the the box, your internet box, like, you don't need one of them per device. Like, he's not fully <laughs> under, like, I went into his house recently and I was like, I'm just, like, putting my phone onto the internet. And he's like, how are you doing that? I mean, that's my internet. <laughs> that's I was like, so no, cute. That, this is the internet. That is really... I'm going to, like, 
I'm going to hook into your network. And he's like, like I was talking some hacker language. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm Johnny Lee Miller in the 1993 <laughs> classic Hackers. And they're like, link into your fucking LinkedIn. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty late to the old smartphone game. I only got a, a smartphone um, after the London riots because everyone was using Blackberries. Because everybody had them for free after yeah. that because they so many. <laughs> yeah, uh, you were a Blackberry person for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, I got a BlackBerry because it had BBM. So it was like before WhatsApp and everything were big, but you could kind of message off grid uh. and organise riots, <laughs> basically. Dark web. Are we done? <laughs> it's felt like a natural. It felt like a natural yeah. end. So in conclusion, PewDiePie's a Nazi. Children in the future will not be able to speak, but they will be able to hack into mainframes. Be able to cancel people. Be able to cancel people just with thought. Yeah. <laughs> Um, nuts and swastikas are sometime okay. <laughs> if you're smart enough to use it correctly, swastikas are maybe okay. Like Hitler. Like Hitler did. To great effect, no? Yeah. And. Uh, Sean Dawson is really nice. <laughs> Yes, so I think that I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff in this cupboard and it's getting dead hot. It's really like, hot. I'm really warm in here. This cupboard is not designed for three people. Um, yeah. So we need to have some Manic Street Preachers to play us out. Yeah. Which one, though? Guest's choice. Yeah. Uh, their last single. <laughs> <laughs> their last single. That would Wouldn't that be rebellious? Right? You want to play one of the cool ones, don't you? No, I want to play You Love Us. Um... We're still seven pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Sad girl anthem before Lana Del Rey. That's true. It was the anthem Do you remember of that band King Adora? No. Yes. Oh, they were like a sort of spin-off fake Manic Street Preachers. <laughs> and they had a song about an eating disorder as well. But it was like boppy. <laughs> I don't want to eat today. Don't make me. I want to have any chips to tea. Mum, don't make me eat my tea. I want to be nice and thin. It's a bit like that. I'm gonna tuck my sandwich under my pillow. Mum will never look there. (laughs) I've been watching loads of Lifetime movies lately, and all the girls are like, "I had a big lunch, Mum. Scrapes plate." Hiding it in their boots and that. <laughs> Fucking yaldy. These are the types of programs that gave you all the tips to have a proper eating disorder. Yeah. I would never have developed an eating disorder if it wasn't for Lifetime movies. Everything I know. <laughs> On that note. On that bombshell. Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Ironically. At FK Alexander. Ironically. At Kitty Cat Boyd. And at David underscore Jameson7. That's right. <laughs> um, you can also look at our new um, webpage. It's at www.contour.co.uk forward slash Connorcast. Uh. <laughs> That's where you can get um, show notes and pics and um, access to other episodes. Um, you can also donate to the pod if you want to give us some money um, so that we can get out of this cupboard and out into the real world. We would love to do a live show um, out in public somewhere um, for like real live heckles. <laughs> um, we encourage that that kind of audience participation. What else was I going to say? 
at the end of this month, me and David are going to celebrate Brexit by doing a special Halloween edition, details Ooh. of which will be coming up. Yeah. Bye. Meow, meow. Bye.